Good afternoon and uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us today in our conversation with Senator Joe Donnelly um, entitled, How Congress Should Take Care of Those Who Serve Our Country. My name is Sherry Goodman and I am the President and the CEO of the Consortium for Ocean Leadership. You may wonder what that the oceans world has to do with our military and the subject of today, but I want you to know that our founder was a former chief of naval operations, Admiral Watkins, as the Navy um, was the original and main supporter of the field of ocean science research and technology. Previously, I served as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, uh, and I'm also pleased to serve on the board of the Atlantic Council and its executive committee. I also serve on the board of the Blue Star Families Organization, which Senator is the largest chapter-based military family organization in this country. I'm very proud to have worked with many, many military uh, and their families, and it's a cause to which I'm deeply committed. Uh, our event today is part of the Atlantic Council series engaging leaders from across different sectors on the issues about which they are most impassioned. Recently, the Council hosted Senator Lindsey Graham uh, on his thoughts about America's role in the world. Today, we welcome Senator Donnelly, who is one of Congress's most vocal supporters of our service men and women. We are proud to host you and continue the Council's work on this theme. The Millennium Leadership Program here at the Council, for example, conducts the Take Point Initiative, which brings in young veterans who want to start a nonprofit and gives them the tools necessary to succeed. Um, in the Scowcroft Center, we host military fellows and put them on a year-long journey to conduct a strategy project that not only helps them professionally, but it help give them, um, help them help the services when they, when they return. And I'll tell you also on this Take Point initiative, it helps incubate new ventures, which is a very interesting innovation. Um, and also the Scowcroft Center's Art of Future Warfare program uh, brings in veteran authors, to discuss how to take care of veterans in the future. Clearly, the Council cares about helping those who serve, and today's event is another testimony to that mission. In particular, mental health is a major issue in the armed services and one that is often overlooked and understudied. Despite high rates of mental health problems, including increased depression and post-traumatic stress, which exceed rates in civilian populations, few military families with psychological distress seek treatment due to worry related to career harm or belief that treatment may not help. And this negative impact is not limited to our soldiers themselves, military family members. I know from my own ex experience with them with psychological distress are more likely to report children with mental health conditions, more relationship uh, issues, and more unemployment compared to those without psychological distress. Even though this is clearly a serious issue, one that needs to be addressed, a 2015 survey found that only 21% of service members and their families felt that the Department of Defense was doing, a well, doing well enough handling the issues of service member suicide. Given the severity of the issue and its wide-ranging impact, including on military readiness, we are grateful to have Senator Donnelly here to offer his insight, and we look forward to our conversation with you. Senator Donnelly has represented the state of Indiana since 2012. Before becoming a senator, he represented the 2nd Congressional District of Indiana, and he serves on the Armed Services Committee, 
Banking Committee, Agriculture Committee, and Aging Committee. He's very busy. And uh, he's on both on the Strategic Forces Subcommittee and the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee. So he is clearly committed to our forces and their families. With that, Senator, let me welcome you once more to the Atlantic Council. The floor is yours. Thank you to all of you for being here, and it um, is actually pretty appropriate to have someone from the uh, ocean policy. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege being on the Strategic Forces Subcommittee of being out on the USS Kentucky somewhere in our oceans, and um, we had a missile test. And what was interesting about the missile test that we had was that it turned out to be front page news the following day um, across the world because uh, the missile was shot off at approximately uh, uh, after it had gotten dark. And I saw a YouTube video. My brother called me the next day and said, what did you guys do? I said, I don't know. What did we do? I think we did everything right. We shot off a missile and ate pizza. That's what we did. And uh, he said, well, check the news. And that's when I did. And so on the YouTube video are, are this family and their grandmother was having a happy birthday party or something. It's happy birthday. And they're singing happy birthday. And you this guy go, holy blank, what is that flying across the sky? And they said, well, if it's not the government, because it was the government, they would have done it earlier in the day. This is some type of um, foreign object flying across the sky. This is uh, some type of secret weapon. And the actual truth of the matter is we were supposed to shoot off the missile at around noon. And when we were getting ready to shoot, the clearance zone um, had 52 pleasure boats in it. And so we spent six hours clearing out 52 pleasure boats, including a Carnival Cruise Lines boat, which I thought would have been quite interesting because the captain had some ideas of what to do with the Carnival Cruise Lines boats if it didn't uh, <laughs> clear the distance in time. But it is a, um, it's a privilege to be here with you and to be here with you on such a, uh, a serious subject. My colleague... John Tanner, who worked so hard for the military for so many years, I'm blessed that John is here. Um, two, of my, uh, two of my wonderful partners in my office, Nathan Fenstermacher, who worked on this issue for years, and Elizabeth Chappelle, who was my uh, communications director for years and who helped me coordinate all of this, um, are here with me as well today. This, in, on the Senate side, all began for me during Chuck Hagel's confirmation hearing. And, and actually it began before that because the suicide challenge we have for our military is so stark and so important to fix. In 2014, we lost over 400 young men and women to suicide. The suicide rate is dramatically, dramatically, dramatically higher now um, than losses in combat. And every one of them is a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife, with kids who can't wait to see them again, with a husband who can't wait to see them again, or a mom who can't wait to see them again. <clears throat> and it's not just those who are um, in combat. It, it's back home as well. It's the challenges that our military has taken up doing guard duty, plus a job, plus a family, plus trying to make the checkbook balance. And in so many cases, relationship issues that, that young people face also. And so there's a lot going on 
and we want to be there for our military. And so this is not only happening during deployments, it's happening stateside as well. And when you looked at the numbers, you said the most uh, dangerous thing for our military is this, is the potential for suicide, the mental health challenges, and are we meeting those challenges, and what can we do to fulfill the commitment we've made to our men and women? And so during the uh, confirmation hearings for Chuck Hagel, um, I asked him, I said, look, we have a serious, serious issue here. How are you going to deal with this? How much are you going to focus on it? And we got an email in the office the next day from Jeff Sexton, who's become a dear, dear friend from Farmland, Indiana. And Jeff and Barb lost their son, Jake, to suicide. Jake served in the Indiana National Guard, was in Iraq, did a tour in Iraq, came home. Next thing you know, he's heading off to do a tour again in Afghanistan. Before the Afghanistan tour, he told his dad, he said, Dad, I don't feel right. This is not going to end well. And, uh, you know, he said, I think my friends are going to consider me chicken if I tell them that because we're only a couple days out and we're on our way. And his dad said, hey, if you don't feel right, don't do this. We can figure this out. He said, nah, I've, I've got a commitment to my guys, to my friends, um, all of these things. Um, I have to go. And Jake was on a tour in Afghanistan, did his first six months. Uh, and, and during that time, did a terrific job, but came home on R&R &R after six months. And while he was home in, in farmland Indiana, just outside of Muncie, um, he and his brother decided to go to the movies. And when they went off to the movies, during that night, Jake took a gun out and killed himself in Muncie, Indiana, breaking everyone's heart. Um, but, but you look and you go, how could we have stopped this? How could we have avoided this? How could we have prevented this? Give you a little background. The choices that our men and women have to deal with on a constant basis. During Jake's first tour in Iraq, he was faced with doing guard duty at the forward operating base. He's there at the gate and everybody behind him, he's responsible for their protection, for their safety, to make sure that everything goes right till the next day. And he's been told nobody, but nobody, but nobody gets through this gate. Here's a kid who's a member of the National Guard. He's a farm boy. You know, he's put a couple of couple of pickup trucks like they do in Tennessee, put a couple of pickup trucks in a cornfield over the years. Um, part of growing up in Indiana and a uh, happy-go-lucky kid, he's, he's guarding point. And he looks up and here comes a car. And his responsibilities are nobody gets through. And he looks and there's a mom and a dad and two little kids in the back seat. And he's screaming at them to stop because if they come through, and if they have an IED in their car, if they have other weapons in their car, then his, then his combat buddies are killed. And so he has an impossible choice to make as he's screaming at them to stop, shooting his gun to get them to stop. Um, and they didn't stop. And Jake took, the, Jake took the responsibilities that he had very seriously and did what he was supposed to do in that point. 
And he told his dad, Dad, every night, every night since that time, every single night I wake up and I think of those two kids. And I think of those two kids and that, that I'm responsible for that. His dad told him, you were doing your job. You were doing the job you were asked for to protect your country, to protect your friends. And he said, I know. But that doesn't make it any easier when I think of those two kids. He was 20 years old when he did that, 20, 21 years old, an impossible choice. And he carried it with him every day. And these are the special challenges that our service members face. And, and Chuck Hagel said, we are going to work on this, work on this nonstop. But our whole team got together and said, let's get this done. And so we proposed the Jacob Sexton Military Suicide Prevention Act. We got that call from Jake's dad, Jeff the next day, and he said, I've lost my son. I don't want anybody else to lose their son or their daughter. He said, there isn't a day I wake up that I'm not completely torn apart, but if I can help make sure that somebody's kid comes home that, that day or the next day or the following day, then I don't care if you have to put me in public. I don't want to go in public, but I don't care if I have to go in public. I don't care if I have to be on a radio show. I don't care if you have me at Rotary Clubs. I don't want another kid to die. And so that was our job. And so we put together legislation with Roger Wicker, who is a great partner. We figured the more we do this together with friends, the better off we are. And it's called the Jacob Sexton Military Suicide Prevention Act. And we were able to get passed into the NDAA, um, bipartisan. Everybody was on board. We were able to get passed in. It had three provisions in it. Um, the first provision was that every service member will have an annual mental health assessment, a chance to talk to somebody so you don't feel isolated, you don't feel weird, you don't feel like you're something different, but that you can go talk to somebody and get help. Get help. You have that, manual, that mental health assessment. Second is that it's private. What I mean by that is we have folks who worry Am I going to lose the chance to become a lieutenant colonel? Am I going to lose a chance to become a colonel if I don't look tough, if I don't look strong, if I don't stand up and make sure that, uh, you know, at every turn I'm the, I'm the toughest, strongest, smartest person there? But we're all human beings. And so the privacy is protected. And third is best practices. The Army has a program. The Navy has a program. The Air Force has a program. The Coast Guard has a program. And what we said is let's get all of these together find out what's working the best, and put them in place. And so we are about, to, it was passed into law last year. They're putting the implementation plans together. It's just about to start. And we said, what's next? How do we make sure we can do this? And they said, look, we have a shortage of care providers. And we said, well, then we have to make sure that everyone who wants to see somebody can see somebody. So, um, you know, I used to play baseball, and when a pitcher throws a good game, you want to have him pitch another game. So I went to Roger Wicker, and I said, I need your help on the next one. And Roger said, count me in. And so Roger, uh, Joni Ernst, and John Bozeman, three Republicans, nobody worries about Republican or Democrat. It's how can we make things better. So this year's effort was how do we increase provider care, provider knowledge. And so it has three different components to it. First component is for the Department of Defense psychiatrists and psychologists that they get additional special risk-based assessment training on suicide to pick up the indicators, the markers, the signs, so they're prepared, prepared to deal with it, 
and, and to do everything they can to make sure it does not happen. Second is that in towns like South Bend and Richmond, Indiana, and Columbus, Ohio, um, that in each of these towns, the psychiatrists and psychologists can now get special training from organizations like Purdue, which has the Military Family Research Institute, that they can get special training. And that training is to teach them the challenges our service members face. Things like what Jake faced. Things like what my friend Greg Kiesling's son, Chance, faced, um, who also lost his life and took, took his life. Um, that, that these psychiatrists and psychologists know this is not just somebody um, in our community. This is somebody who served, put his life on the line, who has stepped up. And so they get what's called a service member-friendly designation. And they can, uh, a service member can then go online and just click and put in uh, service member-friendly uh, help. Bang, it comes right up. That person is known as someone who will be there for them. And then the third step is to try to increase the pool of help um, is we're training, going to train physicians' assistants in psychiatry and psychology. And so that's step one. Next was step two. Step three is what we call, we hope to do next year and the following year, General Pete Corelli, who's been an extraordinary uh, leader in trying to help with this issue with veterans and, and with service members, is to do what's called the handoff from Department of Defense to the Veterans Administration. And what happens oftentimes is the Department of Defense, you're a service member, you've had some challenges, so you're taking a prescription to, to, to try to be in a better place. You get handed off to the Veterans Administration, and they go, yeah, we don't have that prescription. Um, try something else. And we've had problem after problem after problem with that. And so we're trying to make this a seamless handoff that if there's a prescription that they're using and taking, that has put them in a better position, better place, has made them able to cope with things better, that we just hand it off directly to VA doing the same thing. Shouldn't be complicated. Life shouldn't be complicated. But we're working on this to make sure that that happens. And General Corelli has been the loudest voice on this. And we want to back him up with legislation. And the other part we want to try to do is then um, make sure that we have the seamless handoff as well. That DOD uh, smoothly hands off all of our service members when they become vets, because there's oftentimes bumps one after another after another, not just this issue, but other issues. So we have that work to do. We also have the work to do for our veterans. Um, the number that's, that's used and that you hear, we lose 22 veterans every day to suicide. They've served our country, they've stood up, they've fought for us, and we lose 22 of them every day to suicide. It has to end. Um, they have to know, same as a service member, I can go online and find someone. I can go get care and not worry. I can go to somebody in my own hometown and have someone to talk to. Having that care available is critically important. And so that's the other part we're trying to work on, is putting that, there's, there's what you call jurisdictional uh, boundaries on committees. I serve on armed services. I'm not on the Veterans Committee, but we're working with the Veterans Committee so we can get all of this legislation in place. They're starting to have hearings on this to move this forward. It would be great to be able to say 
that we got the numbers to zero for both. Folks have asked me, what's your real goal? You know, if we lost 400 plus, what's an acceptable number? Acceptable number is zero. Because that one person is somebody's dad, is somebody's mom, is somebody's brother or sister, um, is, is someone who served in Iraq and came home, helped build their local church, and then made a decision that cost them their lives. And if you want to know how much we need to get the handoff right, we have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful town in our state, Evansville, Indiana. And in Evansville, we had a group of incredible National Guardsmen head off to Iraq, served in Iraq in 2008. And they were all battle buddies. They were in a Humvee 15, 16 hours every day. Um, and they came home to parades, to cheers. Everybody was thrilled to have them home because they're heroes. But from 2011 to 2015, in the town of, in the city of Evansville, just Evansville, four of them took their lives because once they came home, it was so different for them. There were three of them in one Humvee who, as they said, it was the most intense experience of their lives where every day they had each other's lives in their hands. That those other two in the truck were the ones who were going to keep me alive. And for that person, these other two were the ones that were going to keep that person alive. And when they came home, one of the young men in the truck took his life. And one of the young ladies who was in the truck with him, there were three of them, um, a short while after, took her life. And in the interim, had spent a lot of time just going out to see her friend where he was buried and spending time with him. And we want them to integrate back home. We want them to be able to have a great life. And that's our obligation. Congressman Tanner will tell you the same thing. When, when our men and women go off to serve, we have an obligation to make sure that we make it right for when they come home. And that's all that this is, is making sure we keep that obligation. So I am incredibly honored to be here with all of you. Um, thank you for giving me the chance to say a few words about this subject. It's really, really important. And the heroes are these men and women who serve every single day. Um, right now, there's there's members of our military in some of the most difficult, challenging parts of Ambar province, in um, the Kandahar region, um, up, at, up at Kabul, up in Coast Province, who are defending our freedom and who face incredible challenges. I remember, I'll, I'll finish with this. I remember visiting the Indiana National Guard, the agricultural group in Coast Province, and they were working to try to make uh, the farmers more efficient, better seeds, better agricultural techniques. And um, it was better agriculture and then make sure they didn't shoot at you on your way home from helping them. Because a lot of the folks they helped during the day, they come back through a pass at night and they'd be sitting up there shooting at them. And uh, it was an extraordinary job they were doing, amazing work. And I remember visiting them and saying to them, what's the one most important thing I can do for you when I get home? Or what's the one most important thing I can do for you now? 
And I figured better Humvees, better vests, better guns. Tanner would say more beer. Um, but, you know, they, they were all around and they just smiled and they said, sir, we got this. This place is crazy, but we figured out the crazy. What we need is when we get home to have a job. So when I go home, I can sit down with my family, be able to take care of them, not have to worry about that, not have to worry about bills, not have to worry about anything else. I just want to go back to normal again. And that's what we want to do, is give them a chance to go back to normal again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator, Thank you. for that lovely um, in look at suicide in the military. And um, I wanted to sort of start the questions. We're going to have a, a Q&A between the Senator and I for a while, and then we're going to open it up to the floor um, for questions. Um, and hopefully, you all will have some, some great questions for him. Um, I'm Patricia Kime with Military Times. Uh, I've covered this for about five years. Um, and, uh, and this week, Air Force Secretary um, Deborah James said that so far this year, 273 active duty personnel have taken their lives. Um, that does not count the Guard and the Reserve numbers. Um, mm -hmm. The Defense Department does not publish out those numbers. So we have to, uh, uh, they publish them out, but it's a delayed uh, time frame. But to date this year, it's been 273 active duty troops, which happens to be the same number as all of last year. We have three weeks to go to the end of the year, um, going through the holiday period. Um, why, with all the resources that have been poured into this um, effort, into suicide prevention and resilience training at DOD, are these numbers still stubbornly high? and not going downward. We also have to do other things which are not legislatively directed. But um, I went over to Israel to visit with the Israeli Defense Forces to see their general in charge of uh, suicide prevention. And what they do is at almost every level, put it down to the lowest possible level. So bottoms up as opposed to top down. So, so the, the platoon commander. Um, the person who sees you every day, that person lets the, ID, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, lets them know, hey, um, Jim is struggling. Nancy is struggling. And so it's almost proactive as opposed to just counting on the soldier uh, to say, you know, things are starting to go sideways for me. They are very proactive in terms of saying, I think you're having a challenge. Do you want to go talk to somebody? Don't worry about it. It's not a problem. You know, come back as soon as you're done, but you need to get squared away. And the Israeli Defense Forces, since they instituted this policy, um, have seen a 75% reduction. One of the concerns in the US military is stigma. Um, does there, can you make a policy that gets rid of the stigma of seeking mental health or influencing the uh, promotions or jobs relate, you know, related to if you seek mental health? It really becomes a cultural thing. Um, 
in special forces where they have a lot of challenges in this area too. General Votel has made it very, very clear. If you're struggling, go see somebody, and it has no effect on who you are in this organization, what you do, how you do it, what your assignments are going to be. You are, uh, you are all in before you go see somebody. You are all in after you go see somebody. But please um, take those steps. And that's the culture that we want to see go through um, our entire military that we ask at all of the hearings, um, you know, of every defense secretary uh, candidate we've had, look, is this going to be something where you're going to tell folks you're, you're part of the family, period, and, and we just want you to be a squared away part of the family, someone to talk to. And so um, it's just a constant repetition to the members of our military that there's no stigma in this. There's actual courage in going to see and talk to somebody if you have a challenge that all we want is for you to be good, for you to be the best soldier you can be, and to be the best person you can be. And we'll work with you. And so I, I think they're trying to accomplish that. Research has indicated that people with a history of trauma before they join the military um, are more prone to having mental health issues you know, after joining the military. There's been some discussion about sort of screening at the recruiting levels. What are your thought of screening people for mental health concerns going um, into the military? And is there a danger there of further stigma or of uh, perhaps discrimination? You know, I, I would leave that up to the military professionals on that. They would know better than me. Okay. Um, so we know a lot about the active duty troops and who exactly takes their lives. Mm -hmm. um, the studies, DOD publishes a report every year. It's millennials, young men, uh, people largely who have never deployed. Um, they may have had some kind of issues, relationship, financial behavior problems. Um, but we don't seem to have the same information on the veterans who are taking their own lives. Um, and in fact, that number that is kicked around, the 22 a day, is completely extrapolated. Right. So why, are we, why do we lack that data? And what can we do to learn more about these service members? We just really have to take the bull by the horns and do this. Um, our, our veterans committees in both the House and Senate need to lead on this issue. The VA needs to lead on this issue. Um, we have a wonderful town in our state that was in my old congressional district, Kokomo, Indiana. And it's a town of about 35,000. And Kokomo built an uh, incredibly patriotic town when a young man was, 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 this is a long way of getting to the point, but a young man who served was a Fort Drum. He had gotten hurt, and he was a Fort Drum. And he lived in Kokomo and was coming home, and, and his family called and said, hey, the, um, the, the air conditioner went out. It's not working. And so I called up my, our friends at the building trades. We have so many good friends there. And said, look, can you guys come in and check his air conditioner for him? Um, see if you can get a fix before he comes home. Because we're kind of jack of all trades in these jobs. And they said, absolutely, 100%. He's one of our guys. We'll go do this. So I got a call about three days later. And they said, the air conditioner's not fixed. I said, you know, do I, do I, how hard is this to do? And they said, 
It's because it's not the air conditioner, the house is falling down. The, the house is like off, the, off the, the foundation, it's going sideways. And so we put a group together and we're building him a new house. I mean, that's how much they care. And so in Kokomo, they also had a group of folks get together and take a, an old building, an older building, or, and, and then help build on a new building and created 29 apartments for homeless vets who were going to be living there, uh, getting their life skills back up, working on job training so they could get employment. Um, and they said, we had, we're building 29 apartments. And folks' concerns were, what are we going to do when we only have nine people who apply and 20 of these are empty? Um, and when the application time came, they had enough to build two of these places. So you had veterans in really significant challenges. Um, and we don't know who all of them are because they won't all use veteran services. So we have to reach out much, much better on the internet. We have to work on the VA and much better with our veterans. Um, we have to tell them at all of the centers, um, at everywhere they go, look, if you have a challenge, come talk to us. Come spend time with us. We want to help. Um, so many of the, the Vietnam vets with PTSD, it's these challenges, these, these mental challenges of struggling with this or with that. And so um, we just have to spend an incredible amount of time reaching out and finding them, um, talking to them, and, and trying to help them because they've been there for us every step of the way. The VA scandal last year about wait times um, broke mainly because uh, the Arizona Republic uh, reported that a couple of veterans had died while waiting to get medical care. Um, but GQ magazine just did an analysis of the active duty and veteran suicides since 2001 and have come up with the number 114,000. What is it going to take? And, and what is it going to take for the public to realize the scope, the magnitude of the issue? Well, on our end, it's got to be all hands on deck in both the House and the Senate um, to continue to work. It is very, very clear that everything we've done the last few years on the armed services side for active duty needs to also be matched up um, for veterans, that every vet ought to be able to just go online, find a provider, call them, and get in. Um, that is absolutely critical that we match up both of those, that the handoff works well, that the VA has a chance to see, um, uh, you, you know, put in a whole marketing program of contacting veterans because a lot of them come home. Um, my dad came home and he didn't ever want to talk to anybody about it again. It's just like, you know, you can get your insurance and this and that. It's just like, leave me alone. Um, but they're vets. Um, my uncle was the same way. He's just like, I am out of here. But if you say anything bad about Patton, I'll punch you out. And it's like, okay, I won't say anything bad about Patton. And that was about all he would say. But he was somebody who served his country and loved his country. And, you know, my uncle was wounded in a tank battle. And they have memories. That they'll talk to each other, but to nobody else. Final question before we open it to the floor. Um, Unfortunately, we've seen a number of suicides that have happened really publicly on social media. Um, 
personally, I know of a service member, a family member of the military family member who literally posted on social media, you know, that he was going to die and within seconds was dead. And troops are doing this. Do you have any advice for those of us on the other side of the social media, seeing tweets or Facebook messages that are questionable? How do we, as the general public, reach out and help? There are, um, and, and I don't have all the answers for this, so, so many of you have better answers for this than I do. We have 24-7 hotlines that people can call. Um, if you see someone who's struggling, if there's a way to find out um, how to contact them, that we get one of the, the hotlines to contact them immediately and say, look, we have care available. We have someone to talk to you. We have a battle buddy from Iraq who'd love to be able to have a chance to say a few words to you. Um, th the sooner we can get engaged with them the better, as opposed to them feeling alone and isolated with nobody who understands them. Great. So. Thank you. Um, so do we have questions? We'll start with you right here. If you could please state your name and where you're from and then ask the senator a question, that'd be great. Yes, Sharon Bovat, a voice of a moderate. I'm also nicknamed the DOD whistleblower. I do a lot of issues that Colin Powell's people talk about. I do suffer from PTSD, but I talk about it, and I've had over 5 million Google Plus views. And I've talked to people, two Marine wives whose husbands have committed suicide. They were too proud. They thought they would lose their pilot's licenses. I attended an event at the Atlantic Council at the Capitol, and I asked about PTSD when they were acting at the, in the foyer at the Capitol, and they didn't want to talk about it. Nobody wants to admit that it's a problem, people that are actively serving. And I do remember in the, um, I, I interacted with Oliver North, and he said, be loyal to your country, be loyal to who you work for. And he was very specific, you don't talk, you don't talk. So even though if things aren't classified, they just feel like they can't talk, and it's all bottled up. They feel like they can't talk about having an issue. And then I looked at alternative um, therapies with the PTSD dogs to help these people so it doesn't lead to suicide. And they were told that it was $50,000 per dog. These people are reaching out for alternative remedies, 20,000 people a month month are moving to Colorado. They're self-medicating with marijuana. These people feel like the VA has let them down, and they feel like they can't complain. One woman said that if we complain, her other son might lose a security clearance. People feel like they're bullied, and they can't complain about the VA. I know it's a lot to digest, but there are alternatives with dogs. Have you looked into expanding and alternate therapies? Well, anything that works, we'll be happy to try. And I know for, for some young people that I've known who have gotten dogs and things like that, all of a sudden, instead of just focusing on themselves, they have something else to, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but it is when you have the responsibility for someone else to take care of that, that animal or whatever, that relationship that builds, um, it, it helps. But um, you talk about being loyal to your country. Um, being loyal to your country is making sure that you're there the next day, that you're there for your family and for your son and your daughter who worship you and who want nothing more than to hold your hand and go to a ball game together. And so um, there, I bring up in almost every hearing with these folks when we talk about policies, 
what are you doing in regards to suicide and suicide prevention? Um, and I sound like a broken record too, so don't feel bad. Um, but the reason why is so that it becomes part of the discussion as opposed to something that's in the closet. And what the Israelis do so well is all their platoon leaders, all the, all the leaders of the smaller groups are trained in some signs to pick up, some signs to look at. And they're not psychiatrists. They're not psychologists. They're leading their troops. But part of their training in leading the troops is if, if Eddie is struggling, just have him go see somebody. Eddie can come back the next day, and there's zero stigma. And so it is eliminating the stigma, making sure they see somebody, and keeping an eye out. And what we tell each of the secretaries of the, the various uh, uh, branches, the commanding officers of the branches, anybody who comes before us, we always ask, now, are you encouraging your people to, if they have a challenge, see somebody and make sure there's no stigma? Do you tell them there's no stigma? And they say they do. And so we will just keep beating this like a drum until we get to zero. Great. Right here, please. Hi, I'm Sarah Kalinowski with ABC News. Um, you mentioned um, that you now want to focus on the handoff from armed services to the, uh, from DOD to the VA side. Um, you know, but we know the VA has been criticized for being slow to adapt or change or bogged down by bureaucracy. So I'm interested in a little bit of the practicalities of what you can do legislatively to, as you mentioned, make more kinds of medications available, make more kinds of services and treatments available. Um, if you could talk about a little bit. Sure. You know. Well, General Corelli has been working on this nonstop, retired General Pete Corelli. Um, who said this is one of the biggest single challenges the vets have is, is they wake up and they go, everything I was leaning on is gone. And so um, we've talked to Secretary McDonald and his office about making sure that, uh, particularly in regards to um, mental health prescriptions, mental health drugs, that it can just hand off and that it can be just um, uh, done in a very smooth, hassle-free way so that they don't want, that our, our service members don't wind up in a place where a month later they look up and, and things aren't working for them. And so um, working with Secretary McDonald and the rest of the VA and staying after that and staying on the Veterans Committee to say, look, that the formularies, that there be a policy in place, that there's no change in the formulary for the first year or something, and then you can figure out what happens at that point, um, or that there's no change in the formulary on mental health drugs. Um, these are things that need to be done that we need to continue to push um, on, on the Veterans Committee as well. Um, right over here, the front row. Thank you. Susan Lucas with the Reserve Officer Association. Um, what happened is we ended up doing a survey. We're running a survey right now on TRICARE Reserve Select. And one of the questions we had, a couple of questions on mental health to try and uh, find out what was going on with the Guard and Reserve. And on uh, the very last question, we allowed them to provide comments. And what they have said um, to us in a couple of instances is they were very honest and said, to be honest, I'm lying. I'm not telling anybody right. that I'm having these problems. And the reason I'm not telling them is because they code my medical record that I've identified as a mental health problem. And they said because the unit in the base or facility is so small, he said it really doesn't take that 
that much time for everybody to find out that you've been coded as mental health. And he said, I can tell you right now there is stigma. And, you know, if there's any way that we can fix that to where you're not coded, then I'll do it. But I will tell you that ROA did support your bill. And the reason we supported it, knowing that this is out there, is you put in there that uh, local physicians could get that training. Right. And what I, I hate to say it, but I'm supporting the deception by saying, by having this sure. list out there, hopefully they can find somebody on the outside, outside of the military, to get that care. And that's why one of the reasons we supported your bill. But that, that concerned me about that record encoding. I don't know if you think there's anything could be done about we'll that. We'll try to jump on that and figure that out because a huge part of this has been, been um, like I said, the head of SOCOM saying, we're telling everybody. Don't worry about this for your career. Don't worry about those things. Do what you need to do. You'll be stronger as a team member the next day. And so that's the, the message we're trying to get out there is you're a stronger team member if you can deal with the challenges you face. And um, hopefully that message is getting across the board to everybody. This gentleman right here with the bow tie. Hi. Hello, my name is Clay Thomas. I'm with SetVet. I do transitioning service for our veterans. I'm also a, uh, uh, a veteran. I was wounded too, so uh, I really understand the problems. But the one big problem that we're seeing within the DOD and the VA is that the DOD, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, they kind of, the veteran feels disenfranchised once they leave the gate. And so all the talk about how bad the VA is, so it plants a seed with the veterans, the new veterans. And so when the veteran comes back to the gate, there's no access. And then they try to go to the VA, and so we try to, with the VA, try to get on base and do the briefings, do the transition briefings. But it's really hard for our briefers to get on base, even though they're veterans. And that's, you know, there, there's a really big concern on my part about access. Okay. to that information. So what we're trying to do is bring that into the communities and set up Community Transition Center of Excellence. Well, we'd love to continue to talk to you about this because part of this is I'm looking for the best ideas from anybody out here who can help us um, create a better system, create a better way to make sure that nobody falls through the cracks, that nobody, when they're handed off, goes home and goes, nobody cares about me, um, that that somebody's there for them, and that if there are, <clears throat> if there are challenges, that we meet them. Sir, um, on the follow-up to that, is there enough being done in those uh, transition uh, programs, the military's transition programs, to alert uh, service members of the services that are available to them? Um, are they learning about the VA, the vet centers, and um, all of the organizations that are available to them once they leave. It's all being discussed. It's all being laid out for them. Um, in many cases, at that point, it's like, I want to go home to my family. Leave me alone. Um, that the, the real thing is a month later to go back and talk to them again, six months later to go back and talk to them again. And so um, all those menus are laid out for them, but we want to try to stick with them um, be, because initially it is they just want to be on their way. Right here, sir. 
Senator uh, John Madigan with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. First of all, you are undoubtedly the true bipartisan leader in the House and Senate on, on veteran and service member suicide prevention. To your um, questioner's answer on the best way to prevent suicide among veterans or service members is to go upstream and help them before they get to the ledge or before they put their, uh, a gun to their head. Uh, DOD, in fact, pulled the funding for the Vets for Warrior program in August, $2.5 million, five-year program at Rutgers University's national program, um, and they just pulled it. I had mentioned this to you back in January, and I think one of the problems in the services, once there's new leadership, they keep changing ideas and trying to find the best um, new program, and in fact, it exists. So. Hopefully you and the Senate can figure out, um, Governor Chris Christie from New Jersey got together with the Democratic members of the New Jersey delegation, came up with the $2.5 million for one year, but the Vets for Warrior program needs funding long-term, so hopefully we can get some help there. We will certainly work to try to get that plug back in. Thanks. And anyone who's not familiar with the Vets for Warriors program, hopefully most of the people in this room are, but it is a peer-to-peer peer-to-peer -peer counseling uh, initiative that gets vets in touch with veterans who are trained to counsel. In the back, it's probably our final question. Thank yeah, this you. is Adam Khan. I help uh, large companies uh, integrate uh, uh, veterans who are coming back uh, after service. Um, you know, one thing we don't talk about is that the rate for suicides amongst uh, women uh, veterans is six times higher. Uh, especially amongst 18 to 29 year olds, it's 12 times higher than the, the civilian rate. So um, what's happening there that's causing this? I mean, we, we, you know, I mean, some of the anecdotes you shared today were mostly focused on men, but what about some of the, the, the women? You know, we don't have all the answers. Um, we know the incredible stress that they go through on a tour of duty or even back home uh, stateside. We know that um, you know, they have done an extraordinary job of serving our country. So we don't have all the answers for that. And that is one more area we need to try to get answers to because uh, the numbers are horrendous. Um, and, and here's a woman who has served her country, who has put her life on the line. We don't want this to be um, the way it turns out. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us and thank the well, thank senator for, um, for speaking to us today. And, uh, and if we could give a round of applause to Senator Donnelly. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Oh, <laughs> sir. Uh, I'm, I'm privileged to serve on the board here at the Atlantic Council, and I wanted to tell you all I served in the House with Joe Donnelly, and uh, this issue could not have a more dedicated uh, champion and I wanted to personally come and thank him for coming down here today. And I know that all of us feel uh, privileged to have listened to the dedication and the fervor that he brings to this issue. So Joe, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you, my dear friend.